0: Here's good luck to the pine pot, good luck to the barley mole. Jolly, good luck to the pine pot, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the pine pot, half a pint, chill, half a joke, corner, jill, and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, here's good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley a Welcome back to the American Writers: a 100 pages at a time podcast. In each episode of this podcast I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode we'll be beginning a four-part series on James Fenimore Cooper's The Pioneers. The Pioneers was the first of the Leatherstocking tales to be written, but the fourth chronologically in terms of the character's life. It is set in a fictional town called Templeton, which is really Cooper's town. This means that our main character, Marmaduke Temple, uh, who this town, Templeton, is named after, the land speculator, is none other than William Cooper, who was the real-life land speculator and the father of our author. Notice I did not say that Natty Bumpo is our main character. He spends much of the novel in the background. Um, But this could be true of all the Leatherstocking tales. Um, Natty Bumpo, Leatherstocking, whatever name he has in each individual novel, is almost always a supporting sideline character, often the moral center, though. Uh, And that's true in this novel, too. He is the moral center of, of of the story especially in terms of ecology and the environment and the treatment of the natural world. Um, he's, he, he's very much in this novel like the Lorax almost, speaking for the trees at times when other characters are violently misusing nature. In this novel, Natty Bumple goes by the name of Leatherstocking. It's a name given to him by the pioneers. He's a 70-year-old, maybe 71-year-old woodsman, living off the land while the frontier marches on past him. He has come to he has to come to terms with the changes brought on by the arrival of the pioneers and the settler society and cities and, and towns and all these things in, in his world. The biggest one of these, of course, is Marmaduke Temple and his family, the land he bought and the settlers he's brought over from a diverse, from a very diverse background. The French can no longer be enemies to him. They're just another group of, of settlers on this dynamic and ever-changing frontier. In this novel, he's often accompanied by Indian John, who is none other than his good friend from childhood Chingachgook. He's a nominally Christian uh, Delaware. Unlike the other stories in our series, this one does not involve conflict with the French and the Indians. The largest conflicts in this novel are really legal challenges, very much the struggles and drama of civilization. We have an accidental shooting, a poaching case, and a police action. Despite lacking the action of other stories, it is full of drama, and this story becomes really a turning point in the life of our hero. So without any further delay, let's go and begin our look at The Pioneers. So Cooper begins his story with an introduction which explores the setting of his tale, it's in Ostigo. He more or less says this is Cooperstown, although he gives a different name. He doesn't come out and say it. He, he says it's, it's, you know, connected to the Susquehanna River and, and basically tells you where it is. I, but he does want to make a bit of a distinction from his own family history, his father being the founder of Cooperstown and all. But we get a couple important reminders. One reminder we're given early on is that all this land was stolen from the Iroquois. Uh, in the context of the American Revolution, and he even mentions a campaign that went in and, and fought the Iroquois and then the settlement of the American Revolution, which meant the pushing of these people to reservations. So this is all stolen land. This is one reason why the, the, the Indians can't appear as as enemies or even allies in the story. It's because they've already been essentially defeated and shoveled off off the you know way out of the way of the frontier um, pioneers. So Indian John, rather than being this dynamic warrior, is really almost the last of his kind, and he's, he's really presented as kind of the last representative of the free and, you know, the free Indian. Um, he also reminds us, though, that the, that this pioneer society, I have to be careful not to say frontier, because we're, we're well beyond frontier at this stage. We're really in a pioneer society. It's actually very, it's rapidly changing, and cha- it changes and changes rapidly. Everything is very liquid, but in new ways. The frontier was liquid, too. If you remember the other leather stocking tales, we do have this, this liquid frontier. Um, but the frontier of leather stockings youth in, in adulthood Change, it was liquid as well in the sense that you had changed alliances Indian polities weren't well defined and they moved around a lot you had war which kind of moved things up and messed up uh, arrangements and things like that especially in last of the Mohicans and you had a lot of movement but there was some kind of moral solidity there that that's and a kind of a physical solidity of nature that seems to be going away by the by the 1790s when this novel was set. He talks about this even in the physical description of, of Templetown or Ocupa's Town. The literal facts are chiefly connected with the natural and artificial objects and the customs of the inhabitants. Thus the academy, the courthouse, the jail, the inn, and most similar things are tolerably exact. They have all long since given place to other buildings of a more pretending character. There's also some liberty taken with the truth and description of the principal dwellings. So he, what he's doing, he's talking about the... Architecture and that that becomes a big part of the story because it's not a frontier like if you look at Pathfinder that the most we have for architecture is a kind of a small military fort and a blockhouse and the Deerslayer it was it was literally it was called the castle but literally it was like a cabin on a, on a, on a, on a lake and that's the whole setting for the novel. Last of the Mohicans was a little bit more um, elaborate because you're we doing with Indian um, villages. But here you actually have a a full full full-up town And he has to spend a lot of time describing this town and its architecture And he knows it very well because this is kind of what he grew up with Uh, But he's saying this world's already gone uh, The world he's describing it's only 20, 25 years between the time he's describing And the time the novel was written Okay, so chapter one So it's Christmas Eve In fact, almost the first half of the novel Is set basically on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of, of 1793 so, it, it's, it's not a very, there's not a lot of time covered, which is common in these letter stocking tales, so they tend to be quite um, narrow. It's, it's a little bit more than what you see in the Deer Slayer, which is just a few days, or Last of the Mohicans, which was a week or so at most. This, I guess Last of the Mohicans must be a little bit more than a week, though. But it's still a short period of time. This one is about half a year, um, but about half the novel is set really around Christmas Eve, and the other half is set kind of in the early summer or late spring of the next year. So we have uh, our major character, Judge Marmaduke Temple, the kind, of the kind of the land speculator, the guy who owns the land. He, he's, he's the boss of the town and he's with his daughter, Elizabeth, and they're coming to Templeton, Templeton which is, you know, this town in central New York. Now they have a slave. Um, named Agamemnon, and he's driving the sleigh. So we have this kind of Christmas sleigh imagery, which is which is kind of nice. We actually Santa Claus is mentioned in, in these early chapters as well. Now Agamemnon is a slave. Of course, slavery was still legal in New York in 1793. It wasn't until the 1820s that slavery finally got phased out. Uh, they would pass laws in after the American Revolution in Pennsylvania, New York, to Begin the process of ending slavery there, but it was a long process. It was they were grandfathered out, and so it's it's not unrealistic that you would have had large landowners who would have had slaves. Um, this this man is is like his personal servant, and he's driving this sleigh. And there's a few black characters here, and this is part of the themes we get here. Is just how culturally um, and racially intermixed this frontier is. The Indians have been pushed out of the way, but we still have. Uh, racial and cultural diversity in the frontier. It's not all Anglos. Moving in. So Elizabeth, what has she been doing? Well, she was kind of doing her education in the city, in New York City, and now she's coming back to her, her father's land. So Elizabeth Temple is the daughter of Judge Temple. And basically all that happens in this chapter is a deer is being chased by Dogs, and these these turn out to be the dogs of of Natty Bumpo of Leatherstocking. Temple shoots at this at this deer with his gun, um, but the animal keeps going, and then they hear rifle shots take it down. And these turn out to be Natty Bumpo. The two rifle shots that bring him down turn to be the rifle shots of Natty Bumpo Leatherstocking, who's who's now kind of like this front kind of this woodsman hermit living you know this guy living on the woods on his own when you know next to this growing and dynamic city he's always he's kind of a throwback to the old ways so he's kind of like a homeless guy almost and people respect his skills and things but he is kind of seen being seen more and more as this backcountry weirdo then this is going to be the major plot of the story is, is going to be the trouble he runs into by holding on to his old ways of life you know when a new legal regiment has moved in. The other person he's with is a much younger man who go, who's who's Oliver Edwards, and he's kind of a companion of him. He, his background is a little amorphous; it's not really well well described. People think he's half Indian. People think at times he's Chingachgook's son, and so there's all these kind of rumors about who this guy is. But he's a bit of a weirdo too for kind of hanging out with with Natty Bumpo and and, and kind of living on the frontier. Now the tension in this opening chapter is basically that both Temple and Natty Leatherstocking demand, you know, claim right to the to the dead deer, and the judge says, "No, no, I must have killed the deer because I shot it with a shotgun. Something must have hit it," and Edwards is able to count the bullet holes, and he says, "Well, there's four on the on the tree here," and the judge says, "Well, see, the the fifth, it's a five shot." Um, should have would, would hit the deer And he says, well, no, it hit me And he's able to point to how he was accidentally shot So that's kind of our opening setting Is basically Judge Temple accidentally shot This this young man, Oliver Edwards So basically at this uh, Elizabeth is shocked, is horrified And, and wants to help him So the, the question of the deer is set aside And they basically said Let's go to Templeton And we'll take care of you and get you fixed up It's important that the first event of this book is a conflict over a dead deer because that's not going to go away. And this is not going to be this deer, but it's going to be other uh, deers are going to be this issue. Um, When is it right to kill an animal? You know, who owns these animals? Who has right to to hunt? These are these are going to be questions that would have been small issues in the other leather stocking tales. They wouldn't have mattered in the 1740s 1750s they matter a lot now you know in the earlier tales just killing someone straight up killing someone for their scalp was not a big deal here you have a legal regime here and all the stuff is regulated and managed and and that is really what the story is going to be mostly about is in some ways it's it's a book about the management of resources and who has the right to manage resources and who has the right to claim resources in in this in this territory in these. Lands that are now propertyed and divided up and owned and legally administered. We get our description of leather stocking here, which of course is the very first description of this character we get in, in literature. It's the fourth novel in the chronology of the character, but it's the first time we get him described. So here's I'll give you that description. Quote: He was tall and so meager as to make him seem even above even the six feet that he actually stood in his stockings. On his head, he was thinly covered with a lank, sandy hair. He wore a cap made of fox skin resembling in shape the one we have already described, although much inferior in finish and ornaments. His face was skinny and thin almost to emaciation, but yet it bore no signs of disease. On the contrary, it had every indication of the most robust and enduring health. The cold and exposure had together given it a color of uniform red. His gray eyes were glancing under the pair of shaggy brows that overhung them in long hairs of gray mingled with their natural hue. His scraggy neck was bare and burnt to the same tint of his face, although no small part of his, although a small part of his shirt collar, made of a country check, was to be seen above the overdress he wore. A kind of coat made of dressed deerskin with the, the hair on was belted close to his lank body by a girdle of colored worsted. On his feet were deerskin moccasins ornamented with porcupine quills, in the manner of the Indians, and his limbs were guarded with the long leggings of the same materialed moccasins, which garnered over the knees of his tannish buckskin breeches had attained for him, among the settlers, the nickname of letter stocking. Over his left shoulder was slung the belt of deer skin from which depended an enormous ox horn, so thinly scraped as to discover the powder it contained. Obviously so end quote obviously Leather stocking is fully of the frontier. He doesn't buy his clothing. He makes his own clothing, right? So that's that's what we're supposed to get out of this. And he doesn't really, he's not part of the market. He's not, he's fully self-sufficient, living off the frontier, hunting deer and just kind of living on the wild. So after this incident is described, we get in chapter two, a description of basically who Marmaduke Temple is, his background, how he got to this position of authority in Upstate New York, how did you get this land And basically You know, if you're interested in all this backstory it's, it's rarely a historical survey Essentially There was a Kind of a Partnership between two people One one is actually an important character uh, Shows up, is, is Effingham Edward Effingham and, and Judge Temple They had collaborated, they were both from Pennsylvania And Temple Was once a Quaker um, And He he didn't really talk about this because he was worried about the Effingham family who they didn't like Quakers for whatever reason. Um, So but they made a business agreement to kind of work on this front frontier uh, land to to basically be a land speculator. Now, there's another problem with this Quakerism that's addressed here, and that is he's acquiring all this land out of the the conquest of the American Revolution. And it's addressed right here in the text. Quote, "...it is true that Marmaduke, by this thus state that had been wrested by violence from others, rendered himself obnoxious to the censures of that sect, which at the same time that it discredits his children from full participation in the family union, seems ever unwilling to abandon them entirely to the world. But either his success or the frequency of his, the transgressions in others soon wiped... Off this slight stain from his character and although there were few who dissatisfied with their fortunes or conscious of their own demerits would make dark hints considering the sudden um, prosperity of the unportioned Quaker yet his services and possibility as well soon drove from the recollection of these vague conjectures from men's minds End quote. and quote this is kind of a, a chilling realization is that if enough people are benefiting from a crime or a theft or seizure it doesn't become a moral stain anymore. Right and this is true of so much in our own world even today right but even at this time or if you think about the conquest of the west altogether it was achieved through war and genocide right i i don't know if cooper would have said it in that way I, of course that word didn't exist in his time but he's certainly aware that the indians were pushed from this land and wiped out i mean he calls one of his novels the last of the mohicans so he's certainly aware of the decline of these cultures but you know if enough people do it and profit from it there's no moral stain on it anymore it's just yet another it's just more prosperity right and you can look through all again and again in American history at this story same thing if you were in the South right slavery and genocide combined together to settle a frontier you know it's it's just part it's just how things were done in those days and so even the Quakers can turn their back and forget This this stain, but anyways, what happened is the the revolution kind of broke up Effingham and and Temple, and they went their both their own ways during the war, but then got reunited after the conflict. Oh no, that's wrong. So Effingham he was a loyalist, so he just sort of disappears during the war, and then Temple sort of takes over full possession of this these frontier frontier lands, and then he's basically buying up this these kind of claims that the loyalists. Had Because after they get pushed out of the country Or they leave the country Or they have their property seized during the revolution A lot of people benefited from that seizure of property And this was actually an issue try, that was tried to work out that, that the British and the Americans tried to work out After the revolution in the Treaty of Paris And certainly some loyalist lands were redeemed But a lot wasn't And a lot of the land that was taken from them Couldn't be restored So this is basically, you know what we're being told here is that Temple gets this land through a series of crimes: theft from the Indians, theft from the Loyalists, the violence of war, and you know that's that's the reality of the frontier. We're told in, in it's that many in so many words. And then after the war, Temple just abandons his earlier interest in commerce and becomes a straight-up land speculator. And, and he starts this town. He starts selling off this land to to pioneers who are willing to come there, making a huge amount of profit in doing so so chapter two is all background chapter three is fun if if you like architecture i this is i don't know depending on your point of view you might have different reactions to this chapter chapter three when i first read it i was thinking this is why people hate cooper right because he goes on for like three pages describing a roof literally the description of a roof, roof right um now the The whole chapter is a description of of Temple's building, Temple's mansion, where he lives. And we get the history of the building. It was built by a guy named Richard Jones, who was kind of, I think he's related to Judge Temple. Um, Or is he the architect? I think, yeah, Richard Jones is the architect. He's kind of connected to the judge and then Hiram Doolittle. Who's a character who's kind of hanging around the story. He's he's the one who's built it, and it's all very pieced together and conceited in strong ways in strange ways. But Doolittle, in particular, kind of just he didn't really know what he was doing, and it was kind of a strange guy. And yeah, he's a jack of all trades, so he's a good pioneer in the sense that he knows how to do a lot of things, but he doesn't know how to do anything really well. And so the house ends up looking really awkward and and strange. And so that's what this chapter is kind of about, is, is this played-as-you-go nature of early pioneer society. And we actually get a bit of a defense of the weird architecture we have in here. Uh, quote, the composite order, Mr. Doolittle would contend, was an order composed of many others, and was intended to be the most useful for all, but it admitted into its construction such alterations as convenience or circumstance might require. To this proposition, Richard usually assented, and when rival geniuses who monopolize not only all their reputation, but most of the money of the neighborhood are of a mind, it is not uncommon to see them lead the fashion, even in graver matters. In the present instance, we have already hinted the castle as Judge Temple's dwelling was termed in common parlance came to be a model of some one or another of its numerous excellencies for every aspiring edifice within 20 miles of it and quote and so there it, it, even despite it's it's kind of haphazard construction it becomes a model for other um, houses but anyways this is the chapter where you have like a two-page paragraph describing like a roof and if you look into that kind of thing, it's a lot of fun, but it's the kind of chapter I think a lot of people probably skip by uh, when reading it after they learn they're going to have a whole chapter about a building. All right. In chapter four, they, on the sleigh, they, with the wounded Oliver Edwards, they approach Templeton and they're met by this group of the, the city, Denzian. So it's kind of a moment for Cooper to allow us to to meet these other characters. And to know some more about them. One of is actually the person who designed the judge's house, who's kind of like runs the business side of things for Temple. That man, Richard Jones, is there. Uh, who else is there? So Monsieur Le Croix, I think that's how it's pronounced. L-E capital Q-U-O-I. He's uh, from Martinique. And I think he's fleeing the like kind of the slave revolts there in in the Caribbean. And he kind of runs a small shop in Templeton, like the general store. Mr. Grant appears. Mr. Grant is the minister. And he's, it's still a small enough community that he's kind of an interdenominational preacher and services out of this church, St. Paul's church. We're going to spend a lot of time in this novel in this, this church. And, oh, and then this German Fritz Hartmann. And he's, He's an older man, but he he moved to the America from America from Germany way back. I think in the early in the early 18th century. So he's an old guy. He's kind of like Leatherstocking in the sense that he's quite old, but he's he's old, but he's settled. He's not a frontiersman though, same way, um, the same way. The same way Leatherstocking is, but he spent a lot of time in these frontier areas. He like lived in the Mohawk River for a long time. So he's he's more urbanized. He's he's less of kind of a country backwards guy but he's been here a long time too so that's that's basically what happens we get a little bit on santa claus here so if you want to if you're interested in the history of of santa claus and belief in santa claus it seems it it's comes in partially through through hartman but anyways if that if you want that early folklore in america of santa claus this might be a good place to to date, it it's you know I always thought belief in Santa Claus came a little bit later, uh, or at least the tradition of Santa Claus, if not the belief. It, this came a little bit later in American history, but here we have him writing about it in the 1820s, talking about a time in the 1790s. So it, you know maybe it was around there from the 17 uh, from the 18th century. Who knows? A little bit here is given on the background of of slavery as well. And it's abolition in 1826. And this is partially Cooper giving, um, some background on it. Um, and then this, you know, we get a little bit more of Aggie Agamemnon and his beliefs and, and he's kind of attracted to this idea of Santa Claus as well. And then we got another interesting thing in this chapter, which is this, the term Yankee, Cooper here is associated with the term Yangi. And if you've read the other Leatherstocking Tales, you know Yengi is how the Indians refer to the English. And so the idea here, uh, given by Cooper in a footnote actually, is that the term Yankee, to refer to people, you know, Americans from the North, comes from the Indian term Yangi for, for the English. Now Wikipedia tells us that this is just one of the theories that's out there. So one is it does come from... Uh, yangi which comes from yang the french term for english um, but there's other theories that are presented here so cooper may not be right about that but it's a guess um it, but it's, it's you know you, I, one thing i like about this book the pioneers is it gives a lot of of footnotes and historical context um a little bit more than i think the other novel leather stocking novels do which are just kind of more straight up adventure tales this is more of a more real historical fiction and that it's really grounded in a, in a world that you can feel and experience and almost smell and hear and listen to. And these little details really help with that, that feeling, that immersion you get in a novel like this. The last thing that really happens in this chapter is that Richard Jones is trying to kind of pilot the horses and he gets thrown off so Edwards has to take over even though he's wounded he has to take over and, and manage the uh, and save well, I think the, the welcomers were coming like in a sleigh of their own and, and Jones gets thrown off so yeah, you know, although he's injured Oliver Edwards has to go and kind of save the rest of the sleigh from being thrown asunder so that's, that just shows you his skill it shows you his bravery and it shows you his willingness to, to face a challenge despite being injured and it's the last words of the chapter tell us everyone's very impressed by by what he does in in navigating the ship or the sleigh so this novel's a a really slow burn he chapter five well chapter four is them arriving to town chapter five is is basically them arriving at the temple mansion so you know, it, a lot, it gives Cooper time to introduce characters and to get us a feel for the setting and things like that. But it does come off as a very, very slow and, and ponderous novel. We're over a tenth of the way through the story and really not much has, has happened. Um, we meet a few other characters. So um, we have Pettybone, who's the housekeeper of the Temple House. There's a man named Ben Stubbs. Or just on Ben Pump, he's often referred to. He's also works in the house. He's like the major domo for for Temple, and you know he's his roots are kind of in the British seamen's. You know, kind of he was a sailor in the times before the American Revolution. So again, we're just being reminded by Cooper of all these people who come to the to this Pioneer Society to Cooperstown. All their diverse backgrounds are from all over the world. Literally um, all different status. They have different class backgrounds. It's a very class-ridden society. Something we haven't seen before in the leather stocking tales. class really doesn't enter into it much. I mean, you know, it's totally frontier, right? P- you know, people can live and die and it doesn't really matter what they have, you know, and having a shirt, right? Or was it was wealth in the Slayer. You know, what mattered more was I guess status in the military or status within a tribe, you know, or whether you're in or out of a particular group, that's what mattered in the other Leatherstocking Tales. Here class really matters and it, people have jobs and they have positions in society. So this is all part of the f- w- reason we have such a different feel in this novel that we're in a, very much in a civilized s- setting. Cooper at one point reminds us that in addition to these two servants, there are quote, three or four subordinate menials, mostly black, some appearing at the principal door and some running from the end of the building where stood the entrance to the cellar kitchen, end quote. So Temple has several slaves, it seems. So they settle Oliver Edwards into the Temple Mansion and then call for the physician. And the final moment of the chapter is the physician entering into, into the building to care for the wounded man. So chapter six is merely the, Pretty much just a treatment of Oliver Edwards. Again, we got a very, very slow, methodical um, set, setting up the context of this novel. The the physician who comes is a man named Dr. Alphenhead Todd. And he's not really that good of a doctor, but he's like all they have. So he's the one who comes... Um, What's his background here? Quote, he was the youngest son of a farmer in the Western part of Massachusetts who being in somewhat easy circumstances had allowed this boy to shoot up to the height we have mentioned without the ordinary interruptions of field work, wood chopping and other toils as were imposed on his brothers. So he's from a, a fairly wealthy farm, New England farm family, wealthy enough to at least that one of their sons didn't have to work in the fields. Well, the surgery and the conversation surrounding the surgery is, it's like 10 pages or so. So it's its very detailed and very slow. Um, it's, the surgery itself is not a really big deal. He just sort of cuts him and the, and, the, and the bullet just falls out. So he doesn't really get a chance. Todd doesn't really get a chance to prove his skill in any significant way because the shot falls out without too much trouble. Um, mostly this chapter is just talking about The incidents and letting people know what happened And just a lot of chit-chatting A lot of small talk is going on here And at the end of the something Again, that's something we don't get In the other Leatherstocking Tales Is all this small chat um, The the other novels every All the conversations were very meaningful Either philosophically or morally Or about the plot This book has has a lot more gossiping and chatting and you just get this feel again of being in a very urban very civilized environment where people have a lot of time on their hands people all have their own own skills there's a lot of gossiping about people there's a lot of awareness of people's class status and where they're at and and all that so it's again it just has this really different feel at the end of the chapter, there's basically the knock on the door and it's Indian John Chingachgook has, has arrived. And why? Well, for that, we have to wait for the next chapter. Actually, I'm not quite sure why Chingachgook has to come. He, he kind of dresses the wound, which I think the doctor could have done. I think it's, it's mostly so because Cooper wanted to introduce this character and give his background. And a lot of the stuff we already know, how he was raised by the Delaware, the, the Lenny Lenepe and, um you know, how he really grew up in a world of violence, how he got the name and John, His him being the last of, of a tribe. This is all talked about how he got baptized. Um, now, his baptism was something that Natty Bumpo often referred to in the other stories. He's talked about someday you'll be Christianized or, or that your beliefs are not that far from my own. You know, and Natty, as we already know, has a very view of religion that's really rooted in the frontier and rooted in the environment but we just get this whole background of Chingachgook uh, who's always called basically Indian John here I think the only one who ever calls him Chingachgook a great serpent is is um, Natty Bumpo himself and in this chapter we also get the first I guess legal conflict over over the deer and the first legal conflict of the novel, which is over the deer. Like who has the right to this dead deer? Is is still being debated here. And here's what Temple says. I acknowledge it to be thine, and much more deeply am I indebted to thee than for this price of ven- piece of venison. But in the morning thou wilt call here and we can adjust this, and there'll be more important matters, Elizabeth. Thou will own order a repast for this youth before we proceed to the church. So Temple gives this morally the, the deer to Oliver Edwards. Um, and it's actually, I think it's Edwards who introduces this issue of like, we have to figure out who this this deer belongs to, as has a, his respective right to it. And we get a principle here that actually Temple supports. And what Oliver says is, if a man is allowed possession of that which his hand hath killed, and the law will protect him in the enjoyment of his own. And so this is the principle. And then Temple says this, the law will do so. Benjamin see that the whole deer is placed on this sleigh and have this youth conveyed to the hut of leatherstocking but young man thou hast a name and okay and then he asked what his name is and we finally learned his name is is Oliver Edwards so temple here says that you have a right to what you kill in the woods this is something that's not going to be true at the end of the novel in the case of leatherstocking so we're going to come back to this question about the legality of a set, you know, is poaching even possible under this principle that you, you own what you kill, right? Or who owns the animals, right? By the end of the novel, it seems that ownership of these animals is temple or the laws. The law has at least the right to regulate this, right? You can kill animals only in season and at certain times, Um And this is going to be contrasted with the wastefulness of many of the pioneers in the way they treat the natural environment, which we will be reminded of again and again over the course of the novel. So this is a very touchy issue uh, in the novel about who has the right to kill wildlife and what terms and what circumstances and why and for what purpose. Um, For Leatherstocking and Oliver Edwards, killing animals is is merely subsistence. It's for, for life, survival. But other people are going to kill animals for the market or for and they'll overproduce or just for waste or for entertainment or recreation. Now, one last thing about this chapter is that Oliver Edwards seems to have a chip on his shoulder about Temple, about all the people of the town. Right. He agreed to go with them. But when this issue of ownership of the deer came up, he gets kind of snippy at Temple. And this is something that Temple feels is a bit bizarre he's like well we helped you and we're surrendering any claim we have to the deer you, you certainly can have it and so marmaduke says amnity there was no malice in the act that injured the young man there should be none in the feelings which it may engender and grant steps in and gives some bible lesson about forgiving uh people who wrong you The stranger stood for a moment, lost in thought, and then glancing his dark eyes rather wildly around the hall, he bowed low to the divine and moved from the apartment with an air that will not admit of detention. Too strange that one so young should harbor such feelings of resentment, said Marble Duke when the door closed behind the stranger. But while the pain is recent and the sense of injury is fresh, he must feel more strongly in cooler moments, I doubt not. We shall see him in the morning. He'll be more tractable. End quote. And... I think this is something that temple is not used to experiencing. He's around all these people who depend on him or who, who are almost like, you know, owe him patronage, right. Or he gives them patronage, right. You know, he's the big landlord. He's the boss of the town and the judge on top of all that. And so he's not used to having this, you know, people approach him in this honest, direct and kind of nasty way, you know, come with a chip on his shoulder. He's, he's used to gentilities and, and, I guess, false uh, pleasantries. So with this out of the way, they just go to basically lunch or dinner. I guess it's dinner. Um, And throughout chapters eight and nine, it's just gossip and talking. They gossip about Natty Bumpa, They gossip about Indian John and everyone else. Um, We're really reminded here of of, we get some of the historical background, I guess, with the French Revolution and uh, how this brought people like Lacroix to the frontier. We learn a little more about Temple's claim and his rights to the land. Some of the development that's been going on here. There's been this goal to create, a, kind of create a university. And so there's long term planning for the future of the community. Actually, Chapter Eight is mostly just an aside about the community, the development of the community of Templeton altogether. So it's, it's again, it's it's more of this historical context and this background that helps make this novel feel feel so rich. But there's not not really any plot is advanced in Chapter Eight. It's in Chapter Nine where they're basically at the Temple Mansion, the ones who are still around. I guess John and oliver edwards left they're just hanging out eating and gossiping and and chatting there's not that much to say about it actually of course as you might expect the center of the gossip is oliver edwards like what's his background and there's like the rumors that he's like indian john's son he lives with natty bumpo that He's a half breed, like he's half Indian. That's some of the suggestions. So people really don't know what to make of this guy, and everyone's kind of baffled by by him. You know, Nanny Bumpo is one thing because he was old, and he's kind of always been there, and you know he's always been this, like almost like a homeless guy who's lived in the neighborhood. But a young guy having these same kind of characteristics is a little bit disconcerting for for some of these characters. At least it's gossip worthy, if nothing else. And then they go off to church. So chapter 10 is, is essentially them going off to, to, to Christmas Eve services. And chapter 10 is essentially them just walking to the church. We don't even get to the church service. Um, so just to recap what's happened in the first quarter, a full quarter of the pioneers is Oliver Edwards is accidentally shot by the slave carrying temple and his daughter and this run by the slave. They're going there. There's, a, there's. They shoot at a deer. They accidentally shoot Oliver Edwards. So they take him to the mansion where he's fixed up by a doctor, and then he leaves, kind of in a bad mood. And then the, kind of the community temple's friends have dinner, and then they go off to church. And they don't even get to church. So that, it's is a very very slow burn here. But what Cooper's doing in this these chapters is setting up this beautiful. Uh, well it's not a beautiful town necessarily but this well described and fascinating setting that this novel set in this t- this pioneer town that's very much class written it has slaves and huge landlords and a lot of people in various dependency relationships we're, so we're given that kind of setting we're also given this setting of a conflict between kind of the, the leftovers of the frontier people like Oliver Edwards and Natty Bumpo, Bumpo and Indian John but we also see that in the fact that Indian John's been Christianized, that the, the pioneer society has filtered into, you know, really take over the, rem, the last remnants of of this frontier life. And then we have the introduction that law is going to be a, a character in this story. It's not really f- direct, but there is, you know, the question of who owns the deer at that point is a legal question. Now, Temple doesn't press his claim to the deer in any way. He just gives it up. But there are, you know, the whole question of Who owns the wildlife Who owns the life on this land Once it's divided up And divvied up, it's different when it's a pure frontier As it was in the other leather stocking tales, but now all this land Is owned and possessed and regulated And we have institutions We have churches We have Courts, we have schools And Cooper spends A lot of time, you might say too much time But, you know, he's when you read them in the context of the other leather stocking tales. I think it really is important. I think if you were to read this one first you might be struck at just how ponderous it is but in the contrast with the other three novels it we're, it's he's really setting up this big transition. Now of course he wrote this first so I've, I'm kind of retconning for him and, and justifying the slowness of the early part of this tale in the context of novels he would write later but I don't have a problem doing that it because that's how I think most people probably read these stories. But I really like the richness of it. I like the description of the people. I, the characters are, are so fresh, given what we've already encountered in these leather stocking tales. Yeah, they're kind of run in the mill characters we see in literature again and again. But, you know, coming from Cooper at this point in reading these stories, it's, it's a fresh change. And it does. we do get this image of a, of a rather dynamic and growing and emerging society in Templetown. So I guess that's all I'm going to say about the first uh, quarter or so, the first hundred pages of the pioneers. Um, I'll be back next time with the, with the rest, which is all set. Also, kind of around Christmas time. Um, I don't even. I think we just barely get away from Christmas Day uh, by the time we get to the halfway point of the novel. So we're going to kind of have the same kind of setting building going on here. Um, But, you know, that's that's the nature of the novel. So I'll be back with uh, part two shortly. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments about the pioneers, if you've read it, if you've experienced this novel in any way, have you read selections of it? I know a lot of people read certain selections of this novel uh, in kind of anthologies and in courses because the whole thing might be a bit of a, a meal. But in small bits, it's really great. So if you have any experiences with the Pioneers, if you have any comments on them, please leave them below. I would love to hear from you. Um, or you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll, I'll respond to your emails if, if, if you write there. So once again, uh thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time with part two. Here's good luck to the daughter, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly, good luck to the daughter, good luck to the barley mow. Oh the daughter barrel, half a gallon, half gallon, pint pot, half a pine jill, half a joke, quarter jill, never again and the ramp bowl. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow Here's good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow Jolly, good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow oh the landlord daughter barrel. Happy